Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 16, 5 through 12. And as we read scripture, I just want to ask everyone to stand up. So I know everyone else doesn't do this, but I make you stand up. Uh, and also, if you do not have a Bible, um, there's one in the pew. We have a pew Bible. Uh, if you don't have your own personal Bible, you can steal our pew Bible. Uh, yeah, so take it. We can also give it to you, too. It's a gift. So, um, like I said, it's from Matthew 16, 5 through 12. Uh, I just also want to make another note. I know that, um, you know, if you're any, anything like me, uh, at the end of the scripture reading, we, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're supposed to say in response, thanks be to God. Uh, that was never explained to me. I had to learn that at seminary. So uh, I would just ask, you know, just a, a refresher for everyone. I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, yeah. All right. Uh, if you cannot find Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament, and it is page 822. We are in chapter 16, and starting in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves. We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he, not, he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. With the word of God open to the passage we've just read, let's ask the Lord's help as we consider his truth today. Let's pray. Father, we come and we bow to you today because we are asking for far more than a man speaking and people listening can accomplish. We are asking for the moving of your Holy Spirit to take your word and write it deeply on our hearts. We are asking for transformation. We are asking for change. We are asking to be conformed to the image of Christ, which you have purposed. We are asking, Lord, to know that spiritual grace and power, which does indeed make us uh, living Christ upon the earth. And so we ask you, Lord, that you will today just pour out your spirit upon us as we hear this word and that you will indeed, Lord, uh, take it and make it personal. We ask you today that you will especially highlight those things that each of us individually need to hear and believe today, that you'd give us hearts to believe it to the very bottom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the passage that we consider this week uh, shows the Lord Jesus speaking to some misguided and unbelieving thinking in his own disciples, those closest to him. 
Now, if it was only the kind of thinking uh, the disciples of that day engaged in, well, we'd be good. But no, uh, we often think exactly the same way. You see, the disciples on this occasion were guilty of forgetting to take bread, so they had done wrong. They were derelict in their duty. They had failed their Lord and, in a sense, each other. So when Christ begins to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they immediately think, oh, he's chiding us for forgetting about the bread. That's their first thought. And from what Christ says, they were also thinking that they had forfeited, because they were at fault, any right to ask the Lord Jesus to rescue them from the consequences of their failure. Well, they soon learn from Jesus that neither of these conclusions were true. But what an issue this opens to us. In other words, how do you and I think and how do we act and what do we expect from God when we are clearly at fault? When we know that, when that, that's the bottom line, we know that, there's no escaping that. And, and the promises of a sovereign God working all things together for good, that promise that keep, gives us so much comfort, does it not apply if I'm at fault? Is that kind of off the table now because I got myself into this mess? Folks, this is a very brief passage, and, and, and really it's a seemingly insignificant incident in the grand scheme of things. Yet I believe we should thank and praise God for the disciples forgetting to take bread. Because we learn some very comforting and encouraging lessons from what Christ says and what he does on this occasion. And so it's these lessons that I want us to ponder today as we think about when we've messed up. And the first truth I want us to draw from this passage is this. Our sins, faults, and failures do not diminish the love of Jesus for us, nor change his saving work. I want to repeat it. Our sins, faults, and failures do not diminish the love of Jesus for us, nor change his saving work. I mean, in this case, the disciples were just quick to blame themselves, but Jesus was not. And they assumed he would blame them. And folks, it is a good thing not to take our sin lightly because it always harms us in some way. We should not take it lightly as a result of that. But folks, it does not change the love and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us so much about the heart of our Savior, and especially about the heart of our Savior in regard to our brokenness. Um, this is one of those occasions, I'd like to ask you to put your finger in Matthew 16, and today turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. <clears throat> psalm 103 is a rich psalm, just full of, of wonderful, heart-encouraging um, truth. But I'm going to focus just on a middle section here in Psalm 103 that especially addresses just the heart of the Lord toward our brokenness, toward our need, toward our weakness. And so let's begin Psalm 103 at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. This is who he is. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that word steadfast is added there to say this is a love that can take hits, <laughs> that can take the fact that we do things from time to time contrary to love. 
but it is steadfast love. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Folks, that's something you and I wouldn't dare to say if God hadn't said it, but he said it. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I want to stop and think about that just for a minute. You're probably familiar with this, but... You know, what's he trying to convey? As far as the east is from the west, that's how far our transgressions are removed from us. Well, you know, pick a spot on the earth and go east, and you can just keep going. <laughs> you just keep circling. Pick a spot and go west, same thing. You just keep going. East and west never meet, you see. So this is an expression given to us specifically to say if God separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, he will never see them again, we will never see them again. That's what he is, is saying. But that's not the only thing he says in regard to our sins. He tells us he casts our sins behind his back. Now that's what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It's where we ascribe to God some kind of bodily part. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But we, he ascribes to himself bodily parts at times to condescend to our understanding, to give us an understanding of something uh, at heart level. And in this case, to say he casts our sins behind his back is to say you can't see them. He can't see them. They are out of sight. He could no longer get to them. He also tells us that our sins and iniquities he will remember no more. Now that is not a deficiency of omniscience. It's not just they slipped his mind. No, no, no. That is a judicial act of his will. That is based on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood and the cleansing of his blood. He says, I refuse to ever bring those sins to account again. I, they will not be remembered. But there's more. He tells us he washes us from our sins so as to make us spotless with no blemish, spotless white as snow, Isaiah tells us. In other words, nothing that can be seen that is any blemish of any kind. He also tells us he takes our, seas, uh, our sins and he casts them into the depths of the sea where they sink into oblivion. Now that's a, a, an image that has been used for a long, long time, but God uses it several times in the word of God to say, hey, if I cast your sins into the depths of the sea, they are irrecoverable. They are gone. I heard one preacher, and it was fascinating. I, I wish I'd read all that he read about this. But he just talked about how at the very depths of the, the sea, anything of real substance is crushed, just crushed into non-existence by the weight of that. And here the Lord says, that's what I do with your sins. They are cast into the depths of the sea, and they are irrecoverable. They will never be seen anymore. But then one more, and that is that he nails our sins to Christ's cross where they are eternally marked as paid in full. 
In other words, God says, I've looked them full in the face, but I have covered them in the blood of my son. I have nailed them to his cross because his cross was the thing that won forgiveness. That's exactly what he has done. Folks, believing our sins are truly forgiven, it is a sweet thing. It is, it's essential to our joy. If we can't start that from that as a bottom line, if we're walking around as Pilgrim's Progress's Christian pictures with this massive burden, massive bundle on our back of our sins, our past, our faults, our failures, all the regrets that go with it and the embarrassments, if all that baggage is going around with us on our back, no, we will not be free. The Lord says, Jesus says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He didn't die to leave that burden untouched and still in place. So believing and understanding and really receiving the forgiveness of our sins is just essential to that freedom. It's essential to our joy. But there's something else. It is essential to our victory over future temptation. Nothing will have more power against sin and temptation in the future than for you to know how much you are loved, how much you are valued and treasured, to know how much you are forgiven. That needs to be understood. Well, let's go back to Psalm 103 and read just two more verses. <clears throat> verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You see, we see Jesus doing that very thing with his disciples. He was not surprised at their failure. We should not be surprised at our failure either. either. James chapter 3 and verse 2 says this. For we all stumble in many ways. Now think of that. We all stumble. There are no exceptions to that. And we all stumble in many ways. That's reality. That's the truth. Same thing with 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're not walking in truth. We're not walking in reality. No, we do. We have these sins. We all stumble in many ways. Now, the devil is quick to pounce on, on us any time that we do anything wrong and to press the guilt of it on us for all he's worth. And folks, he gets a lot of mileage out of blame. And we can get just as preoccupied with it, but it's not worth it. Fixing blame usually does no one any good but the devil. He's the only one it does any good. He's the only one who's preoccupied with it. Right here, the Lord Jesus Christ has a clear example of blame before him. But is he concerned with that? Is he dealing with that? He's doing just the opposite, you see. Again, Jesus expected, he was not surprised here, knows their weakness. He's not preoccupied with blame. And that is because he is not surprised at their mistakes. And he doesn't want us to be either. That leads me to say a word to the perfectionists among us, and um, it, I'm saying it because I live there. Um, I'm certainly a, a perfectionist just in the way I think about things, and we tend to worship at the altar of control. Love control. 
want everything to be just as we like it. And we have this high standard of expectation. And often what that means is we are very unforgiving of ourselves when we make mistakes of any kind. Um, my wife used to have to call me on it because of what I was teaching my children. But, you know, I'd be sitting at my desk, I'd make some mistake of some kind or doing anything and say, idiot, dingbat, you know, just, and, you know, just no patience for myself whatsoever. And she sweetly pointed out, you know, that, that's not something you want to teach your kids. But, you know, that tends to be the way that I think. But if we are unforgiving of ourselves, that puts us completely out of step with our Savior. We are out of step with him. If he forgives, so must we. Otherwise, we are, doing, we are condemning ourselves when he is not condemning us. We are condemning someone that he loves, that he has already forgiven. It's done. And that's doing the devil's work because then we become what scripture calls the accusers of the brethren. That's what we're doing in that particular case. You know, I read just a minute ago, so, um, 1 John 1, 8. Well, the very next verse, 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He delights to forgive. He rejoices to forgive. He came to forgive. You know, Micah says that. Micah says God delights in mercy. It says he delights in steadfast love, even though he knows that the cost of being that way, the cost of delighting in mercy is going to mean the cross of Christ. It's going to mean the suffering and death of his only begotten son. You see, Jesus died for us willingly with all his heart, knowing what was in us, knowing what he could expect from us. He did it anyway. He died with all his heart. Uh, in our um, call to worship passage, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8 was part of that. And I want to read that again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, fully acknowledging what we are, Christ died for us. And God shows this love for us so that we will believe it. We'll take it in and rejoice in it and live in it. So the disciples here did not honor Jesus at all by assuming that he was angry and chiding them over the bread. That's not who he is. That's not who he is. And he showed them that right here in this situation. Well, let's move then to a second truth that follows on this in this passage. And that is our sins, faults, and failures do not forfeit our right to call upon our Savior for deliverance. Now, they assumed it automatically did. They got themselves into this mess, and so they certainly couldn't ask the Lord to, to deliver them. But that wasn't the case. In fact, let's look back at the passage, Matthew 16, and just verses 8 to 10. But Jesus, aware of this, when they were reasoning with themselves, oh, he's talking about the bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? 
In other words, regardless of why you're in this fix, in spite of your blameworthy conduct, the Lord says, all you have to do is call on me. I'm the Savior. I am here to redeem. You know, earlier we said Jesus was not dis, uh, surprised at their failure. And if you think about it, if that's true, if he's not surprised at their failure, then he's not going to be surprised at needing to deliver his people again and again because of those failures. But he is ready and he is willing to do that. And here in Matthew, he says to his disciples, having, when they've made this mistake, when they are at fault, he says, just ask. Uh, last week when we were dealing with um, prayer, one of the verses that I mentioned was Psalm 50 in verse 15. And it says this, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You know, many, if not most, of those days of trouble will be the result of our own sin and folly. That's going to frequently be the case. But our Savior wants to be glorified by delivering the weak, delivering the unworthy. You see, that is the gospel of grace. Not only does the gospel teach us that Jesus saves us from the penalty and from the power of our sins, but he also is abundantly willing to save us from the consequences of our sins. You see, Jesus is a redeemer. He loves to redeem anything in our lives that needs his power and his grace and deliverance. Do you remember Gabriel's instruction to Joseph when the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph? And he says, you shall call his name Jesus. Well, why? Well, Jesus means savior. And so Gabriel's full message was this. He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Folks, you and I need that every single day. In every sense of the word, he is prepared to save us from our sins and to do that throughout our lives. You see, the devil wants to cripple our faith by pushing the same old line that, unfortunately, we are very quick to believe. And that is that all we can expect is to get what we deserve. All we can expect is to get what we've earned. And right here in this passage, Jesus just calls the bluff on that lie and says, no, that is not how my redemption works. That is not who I am. We get what Jesus deserves. We get what he absolutely delights to give us in his mercy. But you know, often I think we don't actually ask for the deliverance or certainly don't expect it because we think we don't deserve it and that's a sad thing and that's why this passage is so worth looking at and letting it sink in we think we don't deserve it so we don't even bother to ask and, and you know again I think sometimes it's not so much doubting that the Lord will forgive us as in many cases not forgiving ourselves just not forgiving ourselves let me mention something that I have encountered in Christian circles that's not good. And that is the idea that somewhere in the past we have disobeyed God or we didn't follow his leading in some way. And so now we are forever doomed to a miserable outcome. I've heard it put this way, you know, because you blew it at that time, you know, you, all you will ever know and see in your life is God's second best. 
I remember uh, one time I was preaching on this and a, a man came up to me afterward and he said, that is exactly what I have always been taught. He says, except in my cases, I'd blown it so many times, I was sure I was on God's hundredth best. You know, he just so far down, so far removed from any blessing that God would give. But again, that is not the truth, you see. Jesus is a redeemer. He delights to redeem everything. And, and folks, do not succumb to this ugly tactic of the devil. Instead, just, I mean, look full in the face at past regrets, at embarrassments, at past follies. Look at them and plead the cleansing, redeeming blood of Jesus over each one of them. And when the devil, you know, tries to bring it up again, you tell him, look, your master has redeemed it, and then he's forgotten it, and he wants you to do the same. He wants you to do the same, to let it go, to forget it, because he's covered it with the blood of Jesus Christ. And folks, on this very point, let's not forget what good use the Lord makes of the difficulties we get into because of our sin and our failure. I mean, I can look back, I've got a whole record, you know, of so many times. And, and, you know, the Lord says this, he turns the curse into a blessing. And how many times, you know, well, Lord, I'm the curse, you know, I was this folly, that folly, the other thing. And how many times has he taught me things I probably couldn't have learned any other way. He's humbled me, he's shown me so much of his goodness. So that's how he works. He uses these things to show us how much we need him. He uses these things to show us how insufficient we are for running our own lives and for fixing our own problems. And I think most importantly of all, he shows us how good he is, how much he loves, how quick to deliver and bless far beyond anything that we can expect if we'll only just look to him. And that's why I say it is so liberating to be transparent in the presence of God. The Lord bids us, you know, what's the qualification that Jesus speaks of? He came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's all. Remember what he said, uh, uh, how he spoke of the man, the, the publican, the tax collector, who goes up to pray, and he, he just smites his breast. He won't even look up. And he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord is delighted with that prayer. He's delighted with that. You know, the Pharisee is over on this side saying, well, I do this, 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 and this. He's, he's unimpressed. But this man who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Folks, that's a sweet place to be. It's just to come transparently into the Lord's presence just as we are. Tell him what we're fearing. Tell him lies we're believing. Tell him the selfishness that we see exposed in our own heart. Tell him where we are, who we are, and what we want. He delights to answer prayer. He delights to meet us there if we'll just be transparent before him. So don't be surprised that your folly has gotten you into a mess. He's not surprised by that, but he is right there and ready to deliver you if you'll only call upon him. And that brings us then to a final truth, very briefly. The extreme nature of the mess that we're in does not hinder Jesus from saving us. The fact that it's a tough nut 
He is equal to it. And that's the point behind verses 9 and 10. Do you not remember, you know, the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up? Do you not remember the feeding of the 4,000? They were miracles in each case. I overcame the odds. I did what looked impossible. Give me that opportunity. He says, the mess that you've gotten yourself into, I am equal to it. Dare to believe me, just ask. You know, there's an amazing statement in the book of Joel where the Lord says to his people, he says, he will restore the years that the locust hath eaten. You know, in other words, there was a plague of locust. It came through, it ate up all the crops. Restore the years that the locust hath eaten? That's an impossibility. The Lord says, try me. You know, you just watch. He can restore the years that the locust hath eaten. Just call upon me. Just watch me work. You know, when I think of sizable tasks with massive consequences, I, I think of parenting. Raising humans with souls. That is a tough one. That is a daunting uh, task that, that we are given. But you know, it was and it never I and, and is never possible that you will be a perfect parent. That's just not going to be. He intends for you to lean on him for every part of the job and to ask and to receive real help. And folks, if your children are still alive, there is massive reason for hope. And I mean that seriously. There are a lot of grown children represented here, you know, with parents. But there is reason for hope because we can continue to pray. There is reason for hope because his power is so great and his love greater than ours has ever been. That's a sweet thing to understand. See, even if what you're asking is for him to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, he has that power. He has that ability. Um, I heard a preacher say something a while back and it really put things in perspective for me. Now, I'm going to consolidate this a little bit and turn it into a list, but it's just some very... It's some clarity in regard to how we think about the Lord and regarding our own brokenness. So, <clears throat> first of all, number one, regret is not believing he's dealt with your past. So if you're regretting, you're not believing he's dealt with your past when he has. Anxiety, secondly, is not believing he's dealt with your future. That is imagining your future apart from his presence and promises. But that doesn't exist. He will always be there and he will always be faithful. Frustration and confusion come from not believing that he and his promises are your present reality, but they are. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's with us always, even to the end of the world. And then the fourth one, Keeping the faith, I love this expression, is never letting what's going on around you, the storm, the waves, all that's going on around you, decide what's going on inside you. What he went through has settled that. The victory of the cross of Jesus Christ has, has been won. And that being so, we can have peace in the storm. We can have joy in the midst of affliction and trial and attack. We can have confidence that our God is who he says he is and will be true to every promise he has made. You see, what we saw earlier tells us that as long as we are in this life, we will mess up. That will be a feature of our lives. 
And how can we be a people, you know, whom Romans says can live in joy and peace and believing if we've been crippled by fear of our faults and our failures? You see, Jesus did not go to the cross to have us live like that. And he proves it. And when we sin and fail, he still loves us. And he is ready and willing to deliver us if we'll just ask. You see, he's our eternal savior. He is happy to be saving us our whole life long. That's who he is. You know, if you don't know Jesus as your savior today, I would encourage you to just ask him to be that for you, to ask him to be that for everything in your life. He tells you just to come as you are. So do come. Let's all bow in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that we have just been considering from your word and so grateful for this incident of the Lord Jesus where we just see clear mistakes, clear failures, and yet we see your graciousness and, and how quick you are, oh God, not to chide, but instead to set before them your power and ability to deliver from all the consequences of sin. And so, Lord, we bless you and praise you that this is who you are. And we thank you that all through your word we see that grace and goodness poured out, that you do delight in mercy. And so we ask you today, Lord, that at the bottom of our hearts we will believe it. Lord, the devil wants us always to be looking at ourselves and always to be looking backward. Always, oh Lord, to, um, to just be mired in regret and embarrassment. But Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has delivered us from all of that. He wants us to be looking forward with the hope of the gospel. He wants us to be enjoying his presence and the forgiveness of sins and to consider ourselves, because he does, to be as white as snow. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for the love you've showered upon us in Jesus Christ. Receive our thanks and praise in his name. Amen. It's now time to have our Lord, the Lord's Supper, our communion service. And so I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving to come forward.